Good morning. Um, real quick, 
you can be turning to page 659, 659 in the church Bibles today. <clears throat> Real quick, we have some praises to start with. Uh, our little Gabriel, our grandson, surgery went really well, and I bless him for the healing that he's uh, going under right now. He's just doing really well, and, uh, and I'm told that Kylie continues to do better. So bless the Lord in that. Pray that she can get her nights figured out one of these days. Uh, and we have an announcement about Hanukkah service tonight at 6.30 here at the church. And then for the next two weeks, which will be the Friday will be the 23rd, Sunday the 25th of December, and then January the 30th, the next Friday, January 1st, there will be no services here through that period. So we'll pick back up uh, that at the end of that first week of January. <clears throat> Prayer request. Uh, Linda has still got a bad cough going on, so we pray that I think she goes back this week to get that checked. So we pray that uh, she can get better through that. The Lord will just heal her body. And Olga and Everly are, are dealing with a cold right now. So anyway, and I hear your dad is he having a birthday? Did I hear that? Well, next month. Next month. Okay. All right. Okay. Still doing about the same. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Anyway, he's coming up on 97. He said, wow, bless, what a life. Amazing. Okay, we're going to be reading in Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we just come before you today, and we just uh, we just love the heart of, of David and the things that, the psalms that he wrote. Uh, Lord, the heart he had for you, Lord, we pray that we could have a heart that would always be praising you, always giving you honor for who you are and for all you've done and your amazing grace and faithfulness in our lives. And so we just thank you, Lord, for this uh, word this morning. And you are our salvation and you are all um, that creates everything around us. So we, we just bless you today. I, I just thank you for <clears throat> these praises we have to talk about today, Lord. Uh, without you, we have no hope, and so it, that's why we continue to lift things up to you. And Lord, pray for your help and your guidance and your direction and your healing uh, in all cases. And Lord, we we also just pray that you would uh, help us as a church family as we go through the week, uh, the eight days of Hanukkah, Lord, that you would just Lord, help us to realize how we are called by you just like you were the light in this world, Lord, we are called to be your light to the world around us in this time. So I just pray, God, you would give us those blessings that we can be thankful for, that you would remind us of how you've worked in our lives and the lives around us this past year. And, Lord, we just bless you for this time when we can reflect on that. And, Lord, what this, what this celebration means, Lord, and where it comes from, Lord, is for the absolute rededication of your temple. And, uh, and we just pray, God, that as we walk as your physical temples in this world, that, Lord, you would help us to completely rededicate our lives to you regularly. 
We also lift up uh, Linda and Olga and Ever Everly, Lord. We pray you continue to be with them this week. And God, we just pray they would not only be physically healed, but they would, Lord, be called to a deeper place with you through what you might do in their life, uh, Lord, this week as you heal their bodies. Uh, we bless you. We thank you for this opportunity to come and praise and worship you. And Lord, I pray that your word be, uh, Lord, just spoken and declared clearly in our hearts and our eyes and our ears would hear, Father, what you would bring us today. In your holy name we pray all these things. Amen.
Well, good morning and happy Hanukkah. I think we can say happy Hanukkah at this point, can't we? Um, this is the day that the Lord has made. So some of you may know that um, Rebecca and I's daughter, Abigail, has begun to play basketball. This is her first sport, so it is a lot of fun. Um, but it's also required a lot of work, a lot of practice, um, a lot to orient her to the basics of offense and defense, and frankly, running. This is a lot for her. But more challenging than these things has been Abigail's attitude, and not necessarily because she has a negative attitude, but because she kind of smiles in everything she does to do with basketball. As she dribbles, as she passes, she just has this joyful excitement that's really counter to a sports attitude, right? What I've been trying to express to her is the need to be aggressive and how she can't be afraid. I've seen that as I pass her the ball, she steps back from it in an attempt to catch it. And ultimately, we've told her that in being afraid, in being passive, she's more likely to get hurt than by being aggressive. It is against Abigail's nature to guard her opponent forcefully. It is against her nature to steal the ball from a friend. It is against her nature to have a killer instinct. So I've tried to explain to Abigail this idea of a game face. And that as she puts on her game face, she, she changes kind of her attitude. She puts on focus and demeanor that is different than what's normal for her, what's appropriate in other situations. That in basketball, this is the exception to the normal rules of aggression, of stealing, and of killing. In fact, these exceptions are the expectations in basketball. Do you hear that? These things that everywhere else in her life I have taught her to be kind, to be humble, and to be respectful. And now I'm saying in this sport, for this time alone, everything we've taught you, you are to do the opposite. What the Lord's been showing me in Abigail's progress is what has been true of me many times in my life. That although I've had aggression, I've been passive. That I've often applied standard rules to exceptional situations. That I have underestimated the necessity for spiritual survival. In last week's message, Paul or Saul basically gave us passivity 101. He taught us that the heart gets what the heart wants. So if our heart is made up, our flesh 
will be overtaken in any spiritual battle. Tonight we're going to celebrate this Feast of Hanukkah together. We're going to come together and we are going to light candles and we're going to celebrate the rededication of the temple that took place two centuries before Jesus. We're going to remember the victory of God's people, the Maccabees, over their enemies who sought to desecrate the holy places of God and to destroy those obedient to his ways. There's two main points to today's message. The first is that we have been created in passivity. The spirit which Adam has passed down to us all began from that first weak choice in the garden. Adam was presented a choice between what he knew to be true, what he knew to be holy according to God's word, and what his flesh wanted. We have received this spirit at birth. The second point is that battle is necessary for our survival. If we are not prepared to fight against the enemy of God, against Satan, and against his schemes, we will absolutely be destroyed. I pray today that our hearts would be made up to be aggressive for God's holiness, that our hearts would be determined for spiritually guided survival. So let's talk about Hanukkah. There is a lot to the Hanukkah story, and so I want us to think of it in three different parts. The first part is the background, the things that lead up to what we know about the Maccabees. The second is the battle, the battle for this Maccabean revolt. It wasn't just a battle. It wasn't just a battle in an existing war, but it was a revolt against the existing circumstances. And the third part is the rededication. It's where we get the name Hanukkah. Hanukkah is Hebrew for dedication. The rededication of God's temple. So to start, I should say that the the story of Hanukkah and the Maccabean revolt, it takes place between the time of the the two bodies of scripture that we have, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, The Old Testament prophets end in the 400s, the 400 years before Jesus. And the New Testament begins in the first century after Jesus was born. And so the story of Hanukkah takes place between these two times. And so I say this because the things that we'll talk about today are are not in our scripture. They take place according to historical accounts, to history books, to historians like Josephus and others, and in the books of the Maccabees that are relevant for our study today. So the first thing is that the background of Hanukkah revolves around the Greek way of life. The word for this we've, we've learned, we've talked about is Hellenism, or the people becoming Hellenized. The word hella is the word that means Greek, um, means, I guess, Queen Helen. 
Um, and so this idea means the adoption of Greek culture, of Greek religion, Greek language, and identity by non-Greeks. So we're going to look at a few scriptures in the book of Acts. First, if you would turn to Acts chapter 6 with me on page 1259. Acts chapter 6, page 1259. Now, we're flashing forward to the time of Acts. So this is after Jesus, after the Spirit has been given. And when the church is growing and going through some changes and... Um, God's people are ironing out some things, so to speak, with what it means to be believers in a Greek world. So we're going to read three verses um, that really just give us an idea of this word, Hellenized. So we'll read in Acts chapter 6, verse, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there was a complaint uh, arose, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So I want you to just see this word Hellenist right here. We're going to turn next to Acts chapter 9 over just a few pages and read Acts chapter 9 verse 29. This is talking about after Saul, right here his name is Saul, future name Paul, after his conversion, and he's preaching about Jesus, and he's in Jerusalem, verse 29 we read, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. The next place we'll read is in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, over just a few more pages. In this passage, um, Barnabas and Saul are at a congregation in Antioch. In verse 20 it says, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, now, I, I know we're not reading a lot of depth here, but I really just want you to see this word, Hellenists. Because these are people who are participating in the Greek way of life. We're not given any full description here about exactly what this means, but it can mean a few different things. It could mean solely that these are believers in Jesus who speak Greek primarily versus believers in Jesus who speak Aramaic and Hebrew. It can also mean those who have adopted and immersed themselves in Greek culture those who are participating inwardly and outwardly in the things that were common in the world. It can mean those who were being swayed or influenced by the Greek religion, meaning they had taken on some of the Greek superstitions, the things that were unholy and profane to the Lord. These are identified here as Greeks. Now, there are other places in Acts that, that, that Gentile is used differently, but here the writer of Acts, Luke, is saying these are those who are a little different 
than the traditional ones holding fast entirely to the ways of God. Now, we're not told that these are not believers, that these are not saved by Jesus' blood, but we are seeing that they are distinguished in a way. And that's what I want you to see. In the 330s, 330 years before Jesus' birth roundabout, Alexander the Great was on a mission to conquer what was called the known world, the world that could be known at that point. And um, he wanted as much of it as possible. Alexander had been tutored by the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And Aristotle taught him the value and the superiority of Greek culture and Greek philosophy. Ultimately, Greek thinking. So as Alexander went to war, his goal was not just to conquer, it was to Hellenize. It was to saturate and convince the world of the superiority of the Greek way of life. So, among all the places that he conquered, he would conquer Israel. And as was his custom when he took over a new land, he didn't completely abolish religion or culture. He would just establish the Greek ways of life alongside it. Not as an alternative, but as an addition. Greek would be spoken throughout the region of what is what was then or now called Judea. Aramaic would be less and less prominent, as would Hebrew. Think about that. Seems like such a small thing to take on a different language, doesn't it? But as we see from understanding Scripture, not just according to our English words, but the original intent in Hebrew and Greek, we can understand what is often lost in language. So the first thing is that Greek would be the national language of every land conquered. In Judea, Greek cities or polises would be established. It wasn't just to say that this is a city, but this is now a Greek city. Jerusalem would be one of them. One of them that would conform to the Greek style of organization and leadership. Greek temples were built and erected to Greek gods in every city. So for several hundred years before this, the Jewish people had been living in exile. This was not necessarily new. Because of their sin, they were in captivity to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Persians. So this wasn't necessarily new being ruled by another country. Like Solomon and other kings, there was intermarriage that brought in pagan influences and idolatry. But this was new. The Greek way of life, its influence, and its power was different. It wasn't always perceived as pagan and evil. It was popular and appealing. And it would infiltrate all aspects of Jewish life. See, to be Jewish wasn't just an ethnicity, 
it wasn't just a religion. It was a definition of being God's people. It's really difficult, I think, for us to grasp this today. But maybe being an American is close to this in some sense because for many, to be American means to follow Jesus, right? But it can be easy even in that to kind of label ourselves as followers of God as a Christian nation just because we think we are, right? But to be Jewish meant to be set apart in every way, both civil and spiritual, for God's purpose. So this outside force of a Greek way of life should be opposed to every fiber of a Jewish person's being. But for many it wasn't. It was captivating. It was alluring. And it was intoxicating. But at this point, um, the cultural effects weren't really oppressive. So it was difficult, I think, for many to see how they were really infiltrating their lives. About 10 years after this, about 10 years after conquering Israel, conquering Judea, Alexander the Great died. So this great leader who had conquered all of the known world would die. And after his death, there was, of course, um, a, a lot of intrigue um, and a lot of um, war going on to succeed him. So many generals would, would try and stake their claim, and ultimately, um, about 50 years later, it would shake out that, that two great leaders would rule uh, Alexander's empire. So it would split in two, the Seleucids in Syria to the north, and the Ptolemies in Egypt to the south. And after it was split in these two, the area of Judea was fought after for several years. Again and again and again, this area of Judea was so preferred, even among all the thousands of square miles that these leaders had, this was the coveted place. Ultimately, the Seleucids would retain control of Judah. So the Seleucids uh, controlled Judah for years, and their influence remained pretty passive at this point. They wanted Greek life to, uh, to flourish in the kingdoms, but it was not forced just yet. Um, around 200, a man named Antiochus III ruled the area of Israel and even allowed the Jewish people to continue to observe all of their customs to keep the law, to keep the feasts, and Jewish culture was actually respected and protected. And then Antiochus III's son, his name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he took control and everything changed. He took a much more oppressive approach, particularly to Judea. So historical records cite several things. The first thing that he would do is he would outlaw Judaism and he would order the Jews to worship Greek gods. He would forbid circumcision, and he would have all Torah scrolls, all scriptures, all Jewish writings to be burned. And then he would begin a campaign of persecution against the Jews. So beyond this, there were, were several things that were happening 
concurrently that I think influenced what we would, we would say uh, is the Maccabean Revolt. One is that there is great animosity between the Jewish people, between those that have become Hellenized and those, and those who were welcoming of Greek customs and way of life and those who believed that Hellenism was unacceptable and abstain from such things. So this is bringing infighting among those who are supposed to be God's people. The second is that after the Greek invasion, the high priesthood changed. So Israel's always had a high priest, somebody who is spiritually guiding God's people, someone who is responsible for spiritually governing and drawing God's people back to his ways. Up till this point, the high priesthood was based upon birth and appointment. It was reserved for the descendants of Aaron. Now, under Antiochus IV, it was given to the highest bidder or the highest briber. Think about being able to purchase a spiritual office with finances and influence. There was one high priest that was appointed by Antiochus IV named Jason. His original Hebrew name was Joshua, and he changed it to the Greek name Joseph. Excuse me, Jason, I'm sorry. Then another one came along and offered Antiochus more money. His name was Menelaus. So at this time, there is this this battle between these two who think they have a claim to the high priesthood because of what they have paid to get it. These are who are responsible for spiritually governing Judea. There was infighting going on in the city of Jerusalem, and so Antiochus's answer to this is to storm Jerusalem, to claim the temple, and order the massacre of all Jews. So in three days, the book of Maccabees records, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 killed violently, and many were sold into slavery. Finally, Antiochus had a statue of the Greek god Zeus put into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense. So this is the background for what we read, what we understand about the Maccabees' rebellion. In 1 Maccabees, we can read about a rural priest named Mattathias who was kind of living out in the country, kind of a small-town priest, you might say. Wasn't anyone of great note, wasn't anyone of, uh, of great uh, power and prestige in the priesthood. He lived in a city called Modin. And so as it was happening that new altars were being established in all of the cities for the Jewish people to make sacrifices on to Greek gods, there was a new altar established in Modin. And a Greek officer was forcing, requiring Mattathias to make a sacrifice to the Greek gods on this altar. So Mattathias not only refused, 
but he killed a fellow Jew who said, no, let me make this sacrifice for you. And then he killed the Greek officer who was forcing him to make this sacrifice. Then he destroyed the altar. After this, in 1 Maccabees, Mattathias is quoted saying, let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. I think it's important as we hear this story to hear the heart of this person. The heart of this person was not uh, at insurrection for his namesake. The heart of this person was not to be elevated to the role of high priest for his namesake and for his influence. The heart of this person was that everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant of Yahweh to join him. After this, Mattathias and his five sons fled to nearby mountains in Judea, and many others would follow them. It wasn't long after that, about a year, that Mattathias would, would die, and his oldest son, Judas Maccabee, would continue the revolt. So for three years after this, for three full years, the Maccabees would fight the Seleucids, the Greeks. Word got out about them and um, their rebellion, and their numbers would grow. They absorbed many of the anti-Seleucid groups, many of the Jewish people who had had enough, and, um, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew. Although they grew, they were still a small army compared to the Greeks that controlled half of the world at that point. And so they had to rely on a certain type of warfare many would call guerrilla warfare. It's hard to imagine a small group like this just marching out into an open field like this army and this army and going off against one another. So they would take small villages at a time and they would make raids at night and when the enemy was um, off their guard. And what's so interesting to me is that they weren't just fighting Greeks. They were fighting Hellenized Jews and they drove all away who were complicit in pagan worship in Judea. After three years of revolt, three years, several things would happen really quickly. The first is that Antiochus would put another in charge of the region of Judah, Judea. Um, his name was Lysias. And pretty shortly after this, Antiochus would die. He developed this, this really rare disease in his stomach, and he died. And shortly after he died, the Maccabees would gain control of Jerusalem. So they were taking small pieces around the surrounding villages and towns of Jerusalem, and ultimately their goal was to regain God's holy city, and to regain the temple where they could worship. So the victory of Jerusalem was complete on the 25th of Kislev, which corresponds to our month of December. Okay, so we've talked about the background, we've talked about the battle, and now is the rededication of the temple. So Judas Maccabee 
ordered that the temple would be cleansed. It would have to be, right? For three years, it has been under Greek occupation. For three years, it has had Zeus's statue and swine being sacrificed and who knows what other things. So there was a lot of work to be done in order that they could worship God in the temple again. So Judas ordered that the temple be cleansed, that the altar be rebuilt, and that the menorah in the temple would be relit. So also because during these months, these fall months, they were unable to celebrate the feast, they celebrated the most recent feast, which is Sukkot. So they had planned to celebrate Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, for eight days. So an eight-day celebration was going to be held to celebrate Sukkot and to celebrate the victory that God had allowed them to have over their enemy and to rededicate the temple. So according to the Talmud, which is um, one of the Jewish books that contains teachings and instructions on the Torah, when the temple was being rededicated, there was a great miracle. So there was only enough oil for one day, only enough purified oil for one day. And so the, the, the menorah was to be uh, lit and to never go out. And so there's only enough oil for one day. So they, they light the menorah, but it burned for eight days is what the Talmud says. So for eight days, there somehow was enough oil. And during that time, they were able to press more olive oil and had more so that it was lit and it never went out. So this is an amazing miracle that takes place. But things aren't over yet. They have regained Jerusalem. They have cleansed and rededicated the temple. After this, uh, Lysias, who's the one who took over governing the area around Judea, he just wanted things to be over with the Jews. Doesn't that sound right? Just wants things to be over, so he wants them to agree to a political compromise and revoke Antiochus' ban on the law and keeping of the feast and Jewish worship. The Maccabees knew better. They said, this is not enough. So even after dedicating the temple, the Maccabees went on for three more years battling until they gained their complete independence from the Greeks and Judea. So this is the story of the Maccabees and the history of what we call Hanukkah. This is an intense story, isn't it? It is a day that is easily celebrated for us now. It is a day that is easy to gather together and to think of the great things that, that we celebrate, to think of the Lord's miracles, not only uh, over the enemy, not only of light over darkness and clean over unclean. But this freedom that we celebrate was not free for them. So let's, let's read about Hanukkah in Scripture. Turn with me to John chapter 10 in the church's Bible on page 1236. John chapter 10, page 1236. 
So we'll read together in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Out of my father's hand, excuse me. I and my father are one. This is such a unique passage we read, and it's the only one in scripture that mentions Hanukkah. The word that we read here that John says in verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication. This is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Hanukkah. For Hanukkah means dedication. So there's three things that the Lord has shown me to share that is significant about this passage. And the first, of course, is that Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. And this is the primary reason that we celebrate this feast. Not only is it mentioned in Scripture, it's not simply described as a feast of the Jews, it is a feast that Jesus took part in. The second is is of course apparent that there was a temple for Jesus to walk in at all, right? We don't read that Jesus happened to be in Jerusalem on the Feast of Dedication. We read that Jesus walked in verse 23 in the temple. Without the Maccabees' rebellion, there is no temple for Jesus to walk in. I don't imagine Jesus walking in a temple filled with Greek idols. Jesus is walking in a cleansed temple because of Hanukkah. The third is, and this is amazing, how Jesus remembers and interprets and applies Hanukkah to the situation as he talks with the Jews around him. I think it's easy for many, for many Bible readers and Bible scholars to read this and go, okay, Feast of Dedication, period, new paragraph, Jesus talks to the Jews. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is in the temple on Hanukkah, and he uses Hanukkah to grab the attention of those he's talking to that are questioning his authority as being the Messiah. He's not just rambling on, but he's connecting his words with what was commonly being celebrated and remembered on this day. Yes, Hanukkah celebrated the miracle of the oil, the incredible victory of the Maccabees over their oppressors, but it also evoked the memory of those who had joined with the Greek way of life and were destroyed. Those who compromised and therefore opposed God's holiness. This day would have reminded them of an intense battle that took place 200 years before, a battle for the re-independence of Israel. 
Imagine a day when we're invaded in America. That's a hard day to imagine, I know, because we think that we are the great manifest destiny of God's word in this country, and surely nothing could ever happen. But imagine a day where we are separated from God's protection in this country, and God allows us to return to it. But in that battle, we oppose our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those would be difficult memories. And I believe that Jesus charges those listening with these memories. See, he describes those who believe and those who do not. He says his sheep hear his voice and follow him. To his sheep, he says he gives eternal life and they will not perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of his hand. He's describing what had taken place in this battle for God's holiness. There were those who refused to choose and follow God's ways. Those who refused to choose and stand with their brothers and sisters for God's holiness. Those who indeed perished. Those who indeed were snatched by their own choice out of God's hand. Jesus is, of course, offering a new understanding to them about eternal life. But I believe on a more basic level, he's comparing these believers and non-believers around him to those a part of the Hanukkah story. Some Jews chose to be Hellenized, to be snatched away. Others, though, the Maccabees refused and they battled. Again and again this week, what the Lord has been illustrating to me is the power of the Greek way of life. The power of the Greek way of life. So whether it's a nation like the Amalekites that Saul faced, or the American dream of a house and a family and a job, there are impressive and overwhelming battles for the people of God to turn from his holiness and from his word. Last week we studied how this spirit overtook Saul. How he chose what his heart ultimately wanted instead of what God commanded. We read in 1 Samuel how he was unwilling to do what God had said. First Maccabees tells us that not only were the Jews Hellenized and fully embracing worldly ways, they were willing to defile themselves on the altar of Greek gods to spare their brothers and sisters from this. What a perverted sense of devotion to the enemy rationalizing their own sin to pacify the enemy. This is the world we live in, is it not? Rationalizing our sin and pacifying the enemy. Like Jesus using Hanukkah to illustrate his point to those Jews that were around them, 
I believe Christmas ought to illustrate to us the physical reality for the spiritual battle that is ongoing and enduring. You see, Christmas really only affects us for two months out of the year. For two long months, we feel ostracized, don't we? What are you doing for Christmas, Bill? Where are your Christmas lights, Joe? Why don't you celebrate Christmas again, Rebecca? And all the other stuff, like hearing Christmas music, being bombarded with the traditions and the commercials. But what we encounter physically in these two months is true spiritually forever. God's people have been called out of the ways of the world. And we're required to live in this world. I see that the Maccabees' style of battle was because they were small. And so instead of a big battle squaring off an open field, there were lots and lots and lots of little battles. So it is with us that while we may seem small, there are lots of battles for us to fight. But like the Maccabees, I believe that if we hold fast to the Lord, if we hold fast to his truths, he will give us victory. So Hanukkah should be a reminder for us that we have a battle for survival. And it may not be physically like the Maccabees, but it is spiritually as believers. In the beginning, I said that the Lord gave me two main points to today's message. The first point is that we have been created in passivity. We have to recognize that. Our nature is to be passive to conflict. And as believers, as, as those that have been infiltrated by this idea of a first century new covenant church, we have been conditioned to be pacifists. We have been conditioned to think that it is our role to go along and to be lovers of people. But that is a lie. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. For we are called to be warriors in the Lord's army. Not to solely fight our battles with words and out on these physical front lines, but spiritually warring for God's holiness. This spirit of Adam has been birthed into each and every one of us. And it is present unless we have been delivered. This spirit which wants to put its thumb over us and make us feel weary in these weeks and days of this time of the year and all year round. Battle is necessary for our survival. We are not just fighting an enemy of Greeks, but an enemy of believers who have allowed culture to infiltrate the church. If we are not prepared to fight against the enemy of God, we will absolutely be destroyed. Like Abigail putting on her game face, we must be prepared for spiritual warfare. Our hearts must be made up 
to be aggressive for God's holiness. Our hearts must be determined for spiritually guided survival. I want to close with a reading from Ephesians chapter 6, so turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 6, page 1347. well-quoted passage and a favorite for us, but it is so important that we be refreshed by its understanding with this battle in mind. Reading in verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers, of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the devil day in the, in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints amen so tonight at 6:30 we will gather together for this feast of Hanukkah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to light these candles of the menorah, and I, I, I love this, this understanding that the menorah that was in the temple had seven candles lit, seven really lamps of oil. And so... Now on Hanukkah, we celebrate with nine. We celebrate with a servant candle in the, in the middle that's called the Shamash. And each night of Hanukkah, we will, we will celebrate and we will, we will light an additional candle. We'll do this to remember that the oil, yes, it burned for eight nights. And I do believe that it did burn for eight full nights. But we'll do this to remember God's victory of light over darkness. Of God's victory for those who would follow his ways, who would keep his word, who would refuse to be overtaken by the enemy and by the ways of this world. Amen. Ashamed of what I've done, what I've become, these hands are dirty, I dare not lift them up to the 
Afraid I've let you down inside.